Hello and welcome to Into the Foliage, hosted by me, Ryan Dalton. And me, Janet Garner. The series is all about the green side of nature. Where we chat to the professionals about plants, trees, fungi, grasses and everything in between. This episode of Into the Wild is brought to you by Leica Sport Optics. As the world opens up and we're able to venture forth and go and explore again, it's essential that we have the kit we need so we don't leave nature hotspots disappointed. With that in mind, I cannot recommend Leica Spot Optics enough. Leica not only have a great range of optics for a wide range of uses, but they also offer finance plans to help people like me that would rather pay bit by bit. I'm currently using the Leica HD Ultravids, and now I can clearly see all the birds that I am also still unable to identify. Read more about Leica's range via their website in the write-up of this episode. And now, on with the show. Jan, welcome back to Into the Foliage. You weren't here last episode, you were off sick. No, yeah, I was a bit poorly on the weekend. Not any sinister drink-related reasons or anything silly like that. <laughs> you said it. But I'm okay now, back to my... Good to hear. I missed you, I missed you on the episode, oh. I had to do it solo, which, I mean... I do run the rest of the podcast series <laughs> solo. So, I mean, I was very used to it. It was nothing new, but I did miss you. Oh, thank you. Missed you too. How are you doing with the temperature? Can we talk about how cold it has got? What the hell is going on? I know. Well, actually, I can't believe this. I've actually got my heating on tonight. But I've got the heating on and a jumper on as well. So, Such a British thing, isn't it? I know, it? but I, I'm a bit disappointed in myself because it's only September and I've still got I know. still got loads of flowers out there it looks like summer and heating's on so a little bit it's I feel, mad I feel like I've let myself down a little bit there get putting the heating on that early although I looked it up I looked this up autumn officially doesn't start until the 21st or 22nd of September yes yeah, so no wait is that right yeah it's gone god that's how tired I am Jesus I'm still still two weeks behind the actual day <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Although I looked up as well, it doesn't end until towards mid-December. 21st December becomes winter, doesn't it? That's, I didn't know that. I thought that was winter. Yeah. And then that's when it's nice because you start going in the best direction then towards the light, don't you? That's when it changes. Oh, look at you. I know, I know. It's like I'm a Mystic Meg on the no, show. No, I like, I like the light evenings. I don't like dark, really. No, I know. So, I know. It is such a British thing, though, isn't it? When yeah. it's this time of year, we're always like, oh, I've had to turn the heating on. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, calm down. Disappointing. <laughs> you should have seen us on the boat on the weekend, Jan. We made the first fire of the year. Really? Wow. Yeah, it was lovely. It was quite nice to get back in the routine. But anyway, weather aside, I've got to talk to you about your plant or garden or anything plant-related success or news. Have you got anything good? Oh, do you know what? I, you know, I, I don't want to brag, but there's just so many. <laughs> but... So many. The garden is magnificent, Ryan. Just... <laughs> Years. Now, for the the year one, we'd all like to write our own reviews, Jeff. It's year five star. For year one, it's just lovely. I've got cosmos everywhere. I love cosmos. Just all the shrubs have taken off. Yeah, just lovely. The dahlias are okay, but the ones at the allotment really good, much better. Allotment dahlias are off their nut. Yeah, really good. Yeah, yeah, they they've done well down there. So I've already. This is how good I'm. I've already. Sowed some seeds for next year. No. Yeah, done, really? Yeah, I've done a bit of autumn sowing, a bit of September. Uh, in September, it's quite yeah, early, isn't no, it? No, you can. Hardy annuals, yeah. Um, what else I've done? Hardy annuals. Scabious. <laughs> Sounds like a band at Reading Festival. <laughs> yeah, and, I've, and also earlier, I did some um, foxgloves and some biennials. So I'm oh, getting, nice. I'm, oh, I'm 
alliums and I've got actually I'm embarrassed. I must probably have two hundred allium bulbs, I suppose. What? Two hundred? Yeah, but when you go in Morrison's or something and they're like two <laughs> quid, you think, Oh, I'll get some more. So I've got loads and tulips. So it's gonna it's gonna be a riot out there in the spring. I've got a feeling in your house, Jan, the fridge is empty but the garden's full. You're actually right. <laughs> that is actually right. <laughs> One of my kids well, come round the other day and took a photo of the inside of the fridge and sent it to the other one and said it's never been this bad. Mum needs help. I know. <laughs> Can't eat an allium. Grapes and halloumis. And what about you? What have your garden highlights been? Oh, I've had a mare. I don't know. Well, okay, success. I guess one of my 20 Cupid darts. I can't remember the Latin, soz guys. My Cupid dart which is a Mediterranean flower. Uh, the one out of the 20 flowered, they do. They sometimes take two years, Cupid darts, I think. Right. I did start them indoors, but probably put them out a bit too early. So that bloomed. That was lovely. That was a nice moment. But my lemon trees... Mm, not your citrus. They've gone. Oh, no. They've gone. They completely... I overwatered them. Oh, I overwatered them. Yeah. And I know it, and I was so angry at myself. I tried to be positive. I was like, you know what? You can grow another one. This is what it's all about. Yeah, it's what it's all about, isn't it? Trial and error. The Messed thing it is up. as well... It was a year's process. We'll try again. You've got time. How old are you? 31? 32? 30, 32 on Monday. You've got time to grow another lemon As we tree. record this, everyone, it's the 29th of September, which means my birthday's on Monday. Or was on Monday. I'm just shouting that out for people. <laughs> Not fishing, yeah. <laughs> so you, you've actually got time to grow a decent-sized lemon tree from a pip. Well, if I don't mess it up. I haven't. At 60, I haven't got time to do that. Can you start one anyway and then... I could. Well, and give it to you. I can have it if it goes well. Yeah. <laughs> I'll leave it to you and me will. Just the more the merrier for Ryan. <laughs> oh, don't. Um, well, this is going to be a fascinating episode today. We're talking about plant diseases. It's very 2020, 2021, this episode, isn't it? Talking about diseases and... Yeah. Don't want to trigger anyone on the show, but <laughs> usually people come to this show to get away from that. But today we're talking about diseases and pests, I must add as well. And to help us talk about this and to answer mine and Jan's probably very obvious questions, but is someone that is in the know with this kind of stuff is the lovely Nicola Spence. Nicola, thank you for joining us on Into the Foliage. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Lovely to be here. You're very welcome. It's like I said at the beginning, we're very excited about this episode. We're in the hope that we're going to learn so much and i'm sure you're going to help us along the way with that um our first question for all our guests nicola is can you start by telling us who you are and what is it you do so i'm nicola spence and i am the uk chief plant health officer so that means my job is to advise ministers industry and the public about the risks posed by plant pests and diseases, uh, making sure that measures are in place to manage risks and also develop policy for plant and tree health. And if there is an outbreak of a plant pest or disease, I lead the national emergency response to try and tackle it. Wow, that is that's a top job. It is, isn't it? <laughs> even, even though I do um, work at a UK level, actually plant health is devolved. So in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland do have their own policies but my job is mm. to coordinate things at a national level, particularly where there is a, a national incident. And we all work closely together to protect the UK against plant pests and diseases. Wow. That's amazing. What, a, what an incredibly important job. 
Do you enjoy it? I have to ask that. Do you enjoy the job? Oh, I love it because it brings together all the things that I'm passionate about. Science, plants, people that mm. love plants, the, the wider environment, nature, all working together to try and make sure that we protect them for generations to come and centuries to come. So, you know, it's a fantastic job. I get to work with amazing people who are really passionate and together we can bring about change for the better. Wow. That, that is a worry, isn't it, that you're saying about for centuries to come. That is a worry that in the back of my mind, what it will be like. Mm. So in, in your role and in your, as a person and just a layman, what does wildlife and nature mean to you? Well, I mean, it's, it's a really important part of my life. It always has been. I've always had a passion for plants, even mm. from when I was very small. You know, I, I used to garden with my grandfather. We used to have family visits to places like Kew Gardens, Bodmin Gardens. And I just was really passionate about nature, particularly the plants. I was interested in science at school and particularly biology. Mm. But I must say, I always just gravitated towards the plant side of things. I just had the sense that they were the most important thing because, you know, they provide our food, our medicines, the air that we breathe even. And, you know, they heal yeah. us through their wonderful beauty and the environment that they create for us. So for me, it was a bit of a no-brainer that I studied botany at university. And not everyone quite got it. I think people wondered, what was I going to do with a botany degree? But I was, I was single-minded, and that's what I wanted to do. And it was a fantastic sort of introduction and gave me that sort of scientific basis for understanding nature. So now I get to have nature at the heart of my day job, as well as you know, it's one of my main interests outside work. That's amazing. It's so nice. And I like it. It's funny when you say that, because I think even what I studied, one of the things I studied, you know, animal husbandry and, and zoology and stuff. And people always ask you straight away, well, what are you going to do with that? Yeah. And the whole point of it sometimes, I think, is I don't know yet. Mm. <laughs> I'm going to learn some stuff and go into the sector and yeah. find out. I'm going to do a podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, like, yes, I didn't really know where it was going to lead me. I didn't know quite where it was going to lead me at the time, but mm. it was just what I was passionate about. And, I, you know, when, when I talk to people about careers, I always say, do what you absolutely love. Study yeah. what you love and you're passionate about. Don't worry too much about where it's going to take you because there are lots of options, lots of routes that you might take along the way. Wow. You, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think you learn more about them the more you get into it. I mean, sometimes even when you start in an industry, you still think there's only a few jobs. And the more you go into the industry, you learn like, more oh, God, there's like a million and one things yeah. I could be doing. Can I ask an extra question? Go for it. Of course you can, Jan. <laughs> Are you a keen gardener? Mm, yes, absolutely. So I, I live in Yorkshire. So I've got a garden in Yorkshire. And it, you were just talking about what you were harvesting. I was harvesting my shallots yesterday, pulled them up and brought them in to sort of dry off. Wow. So I've got oh, a nice. good, good crop of alliums, harvested loads of leeks, sent my daughter back to university with a big bag of leeks. So hopefully that will keep them going. So, yes, <laughs> I love working in the garden and particularly growing fruit and vegetables um, and just, you know, enjoying being out outside. It's a nice break from sitting on a video conference all day. Yeah. <laughs> You're so right. You are so right. Um, so today's show, we're all about, like I said, plant diseases and pests. So with you being passionate about this sector, Nicola, what 
got you into that specific part? So, as I said, I, I studied botany and we did a whole range of different subjects, everything from ecology to alpines and plant physiology and things like that. I was actually taught by David Bellamy. He was my tutor oh. Oh. and he taught us ecology and took us took us out on many a field trip. Wow. So he was very enthusiastic. Amazing. But the thing I was most interested in really was the crops side of things, the economic botany, and then understanding mm. that plants got pests and diseases as well. So after I finished uh, my botany degree, I realised that I needed to get into that in a bit more depth. So my next step was to do a master's degree in microbiology, where we studied, you know, a whole range of microorganisms, including plant pests, fungi, viruses, etc. And really, that just led me into a research career, actually. I studied for a, a PhD in plant virus diseases, which was fantastic. So I worked all over East Africa, Central Africa, wow. uh, working on virus diseases of uh, fasciolus beans. So the kind of beans that, you know, are an important part of the protein diet for millions of people in sub-Saharan Africa. Mm. So I was studying the, the diseases that were causing problems and working with plant breeders to try and improve the, the beans. So that was absolutely brilliant. Love that. And just sort of got more and more into the plant disease side of things. So I studied a whole range of crops, including horticultural crops in the UK, tomatoes, flowers, Anything that's got a virus, I was interested in. <laughs> and, you know, it's a fascinating area of study. Yeah, I bet. Often you can spot a virus on a plant very easily through the, the leaf symptoms or the flower break symptoms. So, yeah, I spent sort of 20-odd years doing all kinds of fascinating research and was very lucky to work with some brilliant people all over the world. So, you know, that, that was a really good grounding for my current role. So it must be a massive task, you know, managing this viruses and diseases and pests. Where, where do you start with something this big? So the approach that we take is we look at the risks and where they are and try and assess them mm. and prioritise them. Because as you say, it's a massive task. We're working with hundreds of thousands of different plants, thousands of different pests and diseases, you know, global travel in plants and people means that you know things can move very quickly as we've seen with the the human epidemic of uh, coronavirus yeah uh, it's the same yeah. with plant viruses and plant diseases and pests they can move very rapidly so we have a risk-based approach to trying to understand what the threats are and i've got a, a very technical team of um scientists who work with me to essentially horizon scan all over the world for new and emerging risks. And then what we do is we assess each risk. We think about, you know, what's the likelihood that it could arrive in the UK? How might it arrive? How might we stop it arriving? If it did arrive and establish, what kind of damage could it cause? You know, what kind of impact would it have? Would it be an economic impact if it was a food crop? Or is it an environmental impact if it got into trees? And then we rank each of those pests. We give it a score out of 125, which um, is worked out. We give it a score of five for likelihood that it might arrive, five for impact that it might cause, and five for, you know, what 
risk there might be in the wider environment. And then mm. we we come up with the, the highest score is 125. And then, you know, various kind of levels of risk. So the highest risks, are the ones that we're really worried about the red risks, if you like. And we publish all of these on a huge database mm -hmm. called the UK Plant Health Risk Register. So if you Google that, you'll find that online. It's got more than a thousand pests and diseases on it. Right in that day. Oh, cool. Uh, and it's got lots of technical information, if you like that kind of thing. Of a massive plant top it's trump. A well, exactly. And in fact, we do generate kind of top trumps for each pest <laughs> because it helps us simply be able to kind of work out what it what does it look like you know what crops does it affect what how does it spread you know what impact might it have so that we have a very simple way of looking at it i mean in fact you know there's a lot of technical detail in there as well but actually we do use the top trumps when we're trying to explain one risk versus another uh, and then we review those risks every month the, there's something called the uk mm. plant health risk group which is all the technical people in DEFRA and in the um, the technical authorities in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, we all get together every month and review maybe five, between five and ten new risks and, and work out, you know, are they a threat? What are we going to do about them? And then that gives us a way of prioritising what action we might take. And it could be anything from, well, this risk you know it's very unlikely to arrive and we've got good controls in place because you know we don't allow the import of the host so the risk is very low or it could be something that you know we're really concerned mm. about and we need to develop a regulatory approach if you like a, a, a legislation that will manage that risk and make sure that we can sort of keep it out of the UK because that's the most important thing is to keep things out because if they arrive and establish, then it becomes much more challenging, more expensive, more difficult to manage yeah. them. So, you know, it's a very dynamic process. All of the assessments are published and we, we ask our stakeholders to tell us what they think about our assessments. So we gather information from industry and from the public to sort of get a sense check as to whether we're taking the right approach. So, you know, it's a very transparent approach. And industry, we know, use the risk register also to look at risks in things like potatoes or fruit. So, you know, it's a very technical, dynamic process, but it gives us a lot of reassurance that we're really looking out for new things and we've got a good way of, of assessing them. You know, we, we use Google alerts. We use all sorts of Internet alerts to sort of scrape data so that if there's a, a report mm. of some new problem anywhere in the world, we should pick it up and then we'll start thinking, OK, what is this? Is it a problem? Are we going to what are we going to do about it? And then every month I have a meeting with ministers in DEFRA where I'll tell them what's going on, what are the new things, um, what are we doing about them, and get and get decisions from the ministers about any potential sort of government action that we might want to take. And that's that's you know often where we use our top trump to sort of explain visually and very simply what what the threat is, what we're proposing, and then you know get a decision and and take action. I. I'm just, oh, Jan, if I ever say I'm busy again, I know. I, I'm not no, as busy as Nicholas. It's just <laughs> such a job, you know. What a job. It just blows my mind when it's, because obviously it's this complex, but you never think about it. You never think about these things that are happening to prevent diseases coming in. 
No, that's right. When people say, oh, you know, a thousand pests and diseases, you know, how on earth do you sort of deal with that? Well, I mean, th this is why we've got a process so that we can mm. prioritise. So of those thousand, more than a thousand pests, there's about 60 that are the highest risk that are the ones that yeah. we're really concerned about. And, you know, we'll, we'll review them regularly uh, uh, and check that, you know, we're doing everything we can to keep them out based on what is happening elsewhere in the world. For example, there's a, a pest of ash called emerald ash borer. It's a rather beautiful, jewel-like, emerald-coloured agrillus beetle. Uh, it's native to Asia and it kills ash yeah. trees quite quickly. So it's wow. been spreading throughout North America, Canada. We know it's in Russia and it's spreading wow. west into the Ukraine. So, you know, that's absolutely, you know, one of our highest risks. So keeping that out is critical. And actually, mostly the, the, the means of spread is in firewood. Wow. Makes sense. So, you know, we've got very strict controls on wood coming from any regions with emerald ash borer. But also, why are we importing firewood? <laughs> you know, this is where yeah. behaviour can have a real impact. Yeah. You know, when you, I always take a keen interest in um, bags of, you know, logs that I see for sale. At the petrol station. <laughs> exactly. Uh, have a look at the label. Where are they from? I mean, we do work closely with that industry mm. and, you know, the, the wood should be kiln dried, heat treated so that it's safe. But, you know, we do, you know, do a stop and intercept and test consignments regularly just so that we're we're sure that we're not bringing in infested ash wood from parts of europe wow it's just so yeah it's so in detail imagine that i mean we'll be happy to know on the boat we use kiln dried <laughs> we do it's all dried properly on the boat we're very yeah. responsible <laughs> <laughs> well it's interesting because you know wood wood's a high a high risk commodity mm. and you know the timber trade's very well regulated not just for pests but also for sustainability and yeah. you know the kind of forest sustainability standard but, you know, sometimes we find that other sectors, like people importing huge quantities of steel or other goods, you know, are using poor quality wood, which actually can represent a plant health risk. So uh, wood pallets are regulated. I was just going to say that. Yeah, pallets. They should be heat treated and stamped with a, uh, it's called ISPN 15. It's a stamp which shows that they've been heat treated. Um, so, you know, these materials are moving around the world mm. very, very rapidly. And so, you know, we have to look at where the, the threat might come from. It's not always the plant. It might be the packaging yeah. that um, plant pots and slate come in. We had a single outbreak of the Asian longhorn beetle, which is a, a very large beetle, which infests a wide range of tree species. Uh, we found that in Kent back in 2012, and we linked it to wood packaging material associated with imported slate wow. from Asia, which had been discarded God. in a yard. And then the beetles emerged and infested a whole load of trees nearby. We had to fell <gasps> 2,000 trees oh. to eradicate the pest. So things like that just show a single load of wood that's infested can have a massive impact on a whole neighbourhood and be very, very costly and difficult oh, yeah. to manage. Nicola, how are you so calm? <laughs> 
<laughs> because because I've got brilliant people uh, reassuring me and providing me with really good information, you know. And and if we do find a pestle disease, we take action. Yeah. I become the incident commander, and we've got a contingency plan that we you know, spring into action and we take action and try and deal with things as quickly and effectively yeah. as possible so that uh, it, do it doesn't become established. It's very good to hear yeah. that that is in place because I feel a lot more relaxed now. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was interesting what you said about there about uh, you just said about if something new comes up how often do we come across a new disease is it kind of a regular annual thing or is it could it take a few years for a new one to pop up yeah it's not i wouldn't say it's annual but you know we do find things that are completely new from time to time and of course this is where science is so important mm. because if we see an unusual symptom in a plant or a tree then we've got really good diagnostic detection techniques to try and get on top of it. So a yeah. couple of years ago, we became aware of a plant called Ulico. It's a, a tuber crop from South America. They're mm. brightly coloured tubers. They look a bit like potatoes, but it's a completely different uh, genus. So we were aware that... Um, Ulico was becoming quite a popular food. And actually, it was on MasterChef Peru one year <laughs> when they were filming MasterChef. They went to Peru and they were cooking Ulico. And of course, that drives, you know, people traveling, drives an interest. Anyway, we discovered somebody was selling Ulico tubers in the UK that they'd grown. And it was a kind of a smallholder who mm. thought, you know, this looks great and my foodie friends might like this. Anyway, we sent a plant health inspector to investigate. And I think it was one of those, if, I, if I'd have been there, I'd have spotted it at 20 paces. You know, the whole crop was infested with virus, very obvious oh, symptoms God. in the leaves. So we decided to investigate it and we got our scientists up at Ferroscience near York to essentially do a full DNA analysis to work out what was in there. It's essentially like, you know, taking a, a forensic sample at a crime yeah. scene and you can work out exactly what's in there. So they discovered about 10 different oh. viruses, oh my God. some of which were completely new to science, never been described before oh. in this Ulico. So we decided that, you know, we needed to essentially destroy the crop trace any that had been sold we had a big campaign to sort of tell people not to buy it we we took it down off um, well we asked the um, online sales platforms to take it down and then we went to the european union while we were still a member of the eu <laughs> and made the case for it to be regulated so that's a really good example of you know somebody just thinking, oh, here's a lovely crop, I'll grow it and, wow. and distribute it. And actually, it could have created a massive problem because the viruses in it can also infect potato. But we managed to Christ, can you manage to deal with it quite quickly. And now it's prohibited. So, you know, that's the consequence of something new that we find that we might have to take really draconian action to make sure that it doesn't spread into other crops. Please tell me the person selling it was Greg Wallace. <laughs> I can imagine that. I can imagine him down Borough Market selling Ulico. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, obviously uh, Greg presents uh, MasterChef and 
you know, people love cooking programs, gardening mm. programs, and they actually follow the advice of television per personalities and they think, oh, you know, Peru week, oh, they're cooking with all these yeah. ingredients. I, you know, how can I get hold of them? I'll have a look on the internet. And I think people assume that if you can buy it on the internet, it must be legal. Yes, that's so true. But obviously that's not always the case. <laughs> uh, and in fact, internet trade is regulated uh, for plant health in exactly the same way as, you know, other sales, direct sales. But it's such a fast-moving area. Mm that, you know, we, we do have to be very vigilant. Why is it important to manage these for wildlife and nature? The, the thing is that um, pests and diseases can move from plants in horticulture, house plants even, into the wider environment. And we've seen this with diseases like, there's a, a disease called Phytophthora morum, which is a fungus-like disease, which we think was introduced in a horticultural species and has now spread onto tree species. And also it's uh, found on Rhododendron ponticum, which is a very common invasive species, actually, that uh, grows in woodlands under mm. the trees. So the Rhododendron, not only is it in its own right an invasive species, and people often remove it for that reason, but it's also a host for Phytophthora, the fun wow. a fungus-like disease. And so you get this situation where the rhododendron is actually spreading disease onto the trees. And we think that's what happened. So now, you know, thousands of hectares of larch have been felled because of this disease. And it's that link between horticulture, forestry, the wider environment, which is so important. So in my job, you know, I work with all of those sectors because Something that happens in one sector could then have an impact elsewhere. You know, something that's happening in a in a food crop might actually spread into the wider environment. I mean, a really good example of this is the bacterial disease, Xylella fastidiosa, yeah. which has been spreading in Europe. So particularly it's affected olive trees in Italy. It's wiped out olive in the Apulia region of Italy, the heel of Italy. Uh, but it's got an Jesus. incredibly wide host range. It infects more than 500 different species, including things like lavender, rosemary, oleander, oak trees, prunus trees. So it's one of those diseases that once it's established, it can affect all sorts of different things. Uh, so absolutely, you know, one that we want to keep out of the UK. We've strengthened our measures mm. Uh, since we left the EU in January, we've introduced much stricter controls on high-risk hosts of xylella to try and make sure that we keep it out of the UK because it is continuing to spread in Europe. God, it's scary, isn't it? Well, olive trees are unfortunately a very high-risk host. So, you know, we've got very strict controls on them, but it's something that, you know, we it's one of our highest risks. So we're very vigilant We've got very strict controls and we continue to do a lot of testing to make sure that we haven't got it and we keep it out. Well, Jan's got a nice little chateau going. <laughs> oh, have you? We might have to come and have a look, Jan. I might have to send might have to send the inspectors round. <laughs> oh, please, please do. Please do that. I want the inspectors to turn up at Jan's house. <laughs> this is 
This is a random question for you, Nicola, and we're going to quickly put a pause on plant diseases, but we also like to get to know the person, the guest. But do you have a favourite plant or tree? Well, I think it would have to be the oak tree because they're just so awesome. You know, when you see a veteran oak tree that's hundreds of Mm. years old, I'm just always filled with awe. They've survived hundreds of years. They've survived history and they're still standing. And also they support more than two and a half thousand other living species, which I think is amazing. They've got this huge ecosystem. So I do love the oak tree. And it's such an iconic species, isn't it? You know, the English oak. So it's so important that we protect it. We've actually been working with a partnership called Action Oak, where we've been working together to invest in oak health research to make sure that, um, you know, oak trees thrive for centuries to come. And I'm quite keen on collecting acorns. When I'm out for a walk in the autumn, I'll always have a a pocket full of acorns and then see if I can get them to germinate. So I've had quite a lot of success (laughs) the last couple of years. So I've now got my own little oak nursery at home. So I can plant out oak trees every year from my own little nursery. Oh, that's so cool. What an awesome thing to do. Yeah. I'm always collecting acorns. You have to freeze them. I put them in, not freeze them, you put them in the fridge in a sandwich box. Oh, cool. For months sometimes until they germinate. They can be a little bit tricky. They don't store well, so you've got to get them into the fridge and germinated quickly and then you'll see the the roots popping out and then you can plant them up there you go yeah well that's a lovely thing for kids to do yeah definitely they can and then they're very easy to grow just pop them up and they grow quite quickly when you collect them put them in a, a bucket of water and the ones that float probably aren't good they've been damaged so they might not germinate and the ones that sink are the good ones. The floaters um, might not be <laughs> as healthy. Never want a floater, ever. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I've cheapened the podcast again. Sorry. <laughs> Go on, Jan, ask a question quick. So how can people learn about new diseases and what must, what must we be careful of? So um, if you want to learn about what's going on, um, we have a a website called the UK Plant Health Portal. If you have a look at that, that's got lots of information. We put everything in one place to try and make it easier for people to access. Oh, that's good. So you can find out all about the, the latest things that are going on. But also, you know, there are good sources of information from, for example, the RHS, They do lots of uh, information about plant pests and diseases. Forest research also provide a lot of information. Mm. There's quite a lot of information out there. But I think, you know, in terms of the public, there are several things that everyone can do. Buy responsibly, which we've already talked about. Make sure you're buying from a reputable nursery. You know what the origin is. Buy British produced plants if you can. When you're going out and about walking in woods, clean your boots before you go and when you come back, because some diseases can spread on your boots, spores and things like that. Wow. So whenever I go to visit a garden or a wood, I'll clean my boots at home before I go and then clean them before you come back to your own garden, because otherwise you might be spreading disease. It makes sense, doesn't it? Absolutely. Look, if you, you know, when you're out and about, look out for any uh, symptoms that, and if you're concerned about them, you can actually report them to us 
online through a system called Tree Alert. So there's a website called Tree Alert and it's looked after by Forest Research. So if you upload a photo with the, the position, then they have a, a group of specialists who'll do a triage. You know, just like when you go to A&E, they'll sort of assess how serious it looks, where is it, and prioritise it and possibly visit the site to sort of see if there's anything that needs following up. And then also when you're out and about, and particularly when you start going on holiday again abroad, do not bring anything back. Do not risk it. Don't risk it. Don't bring plants, seeds, cuttings, anything like that, because we know that that can be a source of pests and diseases that then become established and, you know, might spread to your neighbour or to a, a woodland. So don't bring anything back from your holidays. Just stick to the Toblerone and vodka, people. Don't worry about <laughs> Stop taking cuttings. Just stick to the duty-free. Um, is there an example of like a disease or a pest that has kind of really got out of control? Well, I mean, one disease that you your listeners may well have heard of is ash dieback. So ash dieback yeah, God. was first reported back in 2012, affecting ash trees and causing the canopy to thin. And at the time, actually, you know, there was a massive public interest and media interest. And I think that was a, a point at which the public really began to notice what was going on mm. with plant health because they could see their ash trees affected. We've since done a lot of research on ash. We've invested about six million pounds on scientific research. And we know that ash dieback arrived as a combination of importing ash trees that were infected, but also a mass movement of spores across the channel. So the ash dieback, the spores that are caused by the fungal disease can blow across the channel. So we really got attacked by ash dieback, and particularly along the eastern part of the country, yeah. where you know huge amounts of ash have been planted along roads and railways for amenity and natural regeneration have been affected. And we're now seeing the progression of the disease. You know, it's quite obvious at the moment. Although a lot of ash trees that you see look absolutely fine. So this is where genetic diversity is so important. And there's been a lot of work done on the genetic profile of the ash tree. So particularly a scientist at Kew, Richard Bugs, has been sequencing ash genetics, you know, forensic work. And, and we've discovered that there are markers for tolerance in ash. So we know that many ash trees will survive, but, you know, many are actually looking very sick now. And actually, the evidence suggests that ash dieback was here much, much earlier than we even noticed it, perhaps as early as 2004. So you oh, know, it's wow. an example of something that slowly arrived over time uh, and, you know, is having a massive impact. But I think the issue now is just making sure that, you know, any ash tree that becomes dangerous, if it's got sort of limbs that are dropping or you know, it, it could be a, a risk near a road or rail or a school. We've published an ash dieback toolkit for landowners to, to work out, you know, whether or not they need to deal with the ash. I mean, ash is an important species for biodiversity, 
So we don't advocate yeah, it really is. taking it down unless it becomes dangerous. And the tolerant ash will regenerate. So, you know, we expect that we will have ash in our landscape. And the Future Trees Trust have an ash archive where they're collecting and looking after tolerant ash genomes so that, again, you know, we've got ash to breed from in the future. But I think that's a good example of a disease that, you know, really has had a landscape, a landscape impact bit like Dutch elm disease yeah. back in the 70s. Mm. And, you know, now our knowledge is, is much, much better about particularly about trees and disease and how to protect them. Am I right in thinking that the, the, the ash trees in Brighton survived ash? The elm died? trees. No, the elm trees in Brighton. Elm, tri- elm trees, yeah. sorry. Elm yes, trees, wasn't it? They, they've survived uh, Dutch elm disease. You know, they're still there going strong. I mean, you do see elm, but... Often what happens is it gets to a certain height and then it gets attacked. But actually, there's now tolerant and resistant elm that people are replanting with. Amazing. There are some hybrid elms that have been bred and are very resistant. So that people are beginning to plant them again. So it's a kind of cycle of events. Yeah, that's um, incredible as well, isn't it? We, yeah. And I mean, this is where science is so important. It's important that we study our plants and trees and we come up with yeah. solutions to protect them in the long run. And, you know, as a gardener that's trying to garden organically, what are the best ways to prevent these diseases and pests and how can we control them? Well, I mean, obviously the best thing is to keep keep them out altogether at the beginning. That's always the, the, the best way to tackle them. But if things do become infected, uh, then, you know, there's a, there's a range of strategies. You know, there is good biological control available for some pests and diseases. And, you know, people that want to garden organically, you know, there are various parasitoids and natural predators and things that you can buy online that that work quite well. Yeah. And also maintaining good plant health, you know, that the vigour of your plant will help them resist pests and diseases. So it's making sure that, you know, plants are healthy in the first place, they're vigorous, you know, you've got good soil and, you know, even things like companion planting can be effective, you know, where you've got crops that are susceptible to one pest, you know, you intercrop them with something else, you know, the classic sort of intercropping different vegetable crops so that the pest gets drawn away from the crop you're trying to protect. Also, you can use things as sentinel species in the wine industry grapevines usually have a rose bush planted at the end of the the row oh. because roses are suscept- very susceptible to things like mildew botrytis and that can often be an early warning if you've got a susceptible rose species that tells you first that you've potentially got a problem and you need to take action so i think it's very much working wow at one with your garden and, and, and being observant, seeing what's happening, taking early action yeah. so that you can deal with problems. Sometimes you have to sacrifice a plant if it has, you know, a serious pest or disease and, you know, there's nothing that you can do about it. You actually have to be quite brutal and get rid of it, burn it. But, you know, it's great to see gardeners taking an interest in plant health and being able to sort of garden safely whilst managing the problems there was something i wanted to ask you as well whilst i had you on the show before our last question to you because it's something kind of local well not just local to me but at hampstead heath near where i live where there's 
kind of occasional problem of is it oak moth? Is that a thing? Oak processionary moth. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and that's dealt with by I think spraying insecticides. Is it? Well, oak processionary moth unfortunately is established in West London. It was introduced mm. through infested trees back in about the early two thousands. And Mm. unfortunately, you know, the moth has spread, but we do take action on it. Um, You know, we have this kind of control area. We use a spray of something called Bacillus thuringiensis, Bt, which is actually a a Mm. biological agent. Oh, wow. Which can be effective. So the, the real problem with oak processionary moth actually is the impact on human health because it's it's a hairy caterpillar and you get a really nasty rash from it that's the that's the real issue uh, it can affect wow. humans animals so if you have a nest in your tree then you know it's really not safe to to touch it or go anywhere near it which is why either nest wow. removal or treating the egg plaques with BT is what we recommend. So, you know, that's definitely one that has, unfortunately, has become established. It does cause a bit of mm. defoliation in the oak tree, but the oak trees seem to recover. So it's quite an interesting one. Oh, that's good news. It, yeah, mm. it's good news for the oak, but we still, we are still taking action on it and we have strict controls on imported oaks because, you know, we don't want it to spread any further. And, you know, we're trying to kind of limit its spread and take action where we can and encourage landowners and tree owners to bring in specialist contractors to get rid of it. It's not something you can tackle yourself. No, absolutely. I mean, I see the signs up at Hampstead Heath, and I don't yeah. know if it has ever been there, but I've certainly seen the signs saying, been, yes, there have been findings. This. It has it. Yeah. So I think Hampstead Heath is part of the London parks, who take, who will take action uh, on it. City, yeah, City of London. City of London, have. yeah. So we work close, yeah. closely with all the boroughs that are affected and Forestry Commission and their contractors are the ones that sort of come and, and take action because obviously Hampstead Heath is very popular. A lot of people use it, so we want to keep it safe for yeah. people to enjoy being outside. So, you know, definitely something that we're trying to keep on top of. That's amazing. Well, our last question to you, Nicola, is um, probably the hardest one that we're going to ask. It always is. People struggle sometimes with it. But if you could pass on just one bit of advice onto everyone regarding the natural world, what would you pass on? I think my advice would be notice what's going on. Look around you. Pay attention to what's going on and if you see something that's not right Mm. in a plant or a tree then do something about it you know report it we've all got a collective responsibility as a plant pathologist when i'm out for a walk i'm always nosing around looking at things looking up into the canopy i notice what's going on in fact we've trained 200 expert volunteers under a project called observatory to do just that and oh cool and we've trained them to try and spot 25 tree pests and diseases and then we asked them just to to go out as they do normally for a walk on Mm. their patch tell us what's going on so i think my advice is look up look around notice the natural world and if something's not right do something about it great bit and you know what that feeds nicely what we say on the podcast jan is if you if you're listening now and you're out and about on a walk turn it off this is for at home 
Enjoy your walk. Notice stuff. Look around. Don't listen to our voices on your walk, people. <laughs> listen to stuff and look. Um, Nicola, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's an absolute pleasure and an honour to have you on. Of someone that is so busy and works so hard at such an important job. So it's been a, a pleasure to be able to ask you these questions today. No problem. Thanks very much. Yeah, take care. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to keep up to date with the projects and work Nicola is working on, then you can follow her on social media. Her tags are in the write-up of this episode. And you can also get in touch with me at intothewildpod at gmail.com or on social media at intothewildpod on Twitter and intothewildpodcast on Instagram. Whether you just want to say hello or share some thoughts on an episode or even let me know what you want to hear about next. A reminder that any views or opinions expressed in today's show belong to the person who said them and do not represent Into the Wild or anyone that we have worked with or are affiliated with. Into the Wild aims to always be a free show, however running and producing it is not free. If you'd like to support us by saying thanks and you can do so by buying me a coffee, our Kofi link is in the write-up of this episode. But until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.